give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire. Welcome to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. That is such an awesome song. It's not what we're here to talk about today. Sorry. We are here today to talk about Metallica. Metallica, welcome back. Jason, how you doing, man? I'm good, man. It's been a long time. You and I have been gone for a couple of weeks. Yeah, we uh, happened to run into each other running, of all places. I know. And so that was nice. That was a revisit of the spawning of our podcast, those runs we used to do together all the time. It's crazy. We were. I just started for a little run, and then you dragged me on a bigger run. <laughs> it's funny how that always works out. Well, I'm prepping for a marathon, man. That's I funny. know. I know. Good for you. We are back. After two weeks off, we have reissued some podcasts. We did Nirvana's Nevermind. We did Pearl Jam's 10, which we did about a year ago Mm -hmm. uh, to sort of kick off this fall of 91 thing that we're doing right now. Yeah. The day that we're recording today is the 30th anniversary of Pearl Jam's 10 album being released. I know. It's crazy. 30 years. 30 years. So 30 years for all of these albums. You got 30 years for Ozzy Osbourne, No No More Tears. Tears. You got 30 years for Metallica Black. You've got 30 years for Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, which we're going to compare to this album. I mean, all of these things are hitting their three-decade mark, and And they're still amazing. There was a lot happening the fall of 91. It's going to be super fun and super cool to get into it. We were watching some of these videos with the Metallica Black stuff, and Mm -hmm. I was going through it, and that album is so timeless. It seems so recent in my memory. When they're looking at like the Persian Gulf War while they're recording, I'm like, wow, that kind of dates it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Okay. We're going to discuss the history of the band, and then we're going to get into Metallica Metallica, the album that brought Metallica into the mainstream, cost a million dollars to make, was remixed three times, and ended three marriages. (laughs) That's pretty epic, man. It's pretty epic. This is otherwise known as the Black Album. Okay, so beginning the history of Metallica, you have two major players in the band. You have Mr. James Hetfield and you have Mr. Lars Ulrich. There are other members of the band that come and go along the way, but these guys are the ones that originated the band and they're the ones that have been the driving force behind their songwriting and their rise and stay in fame. Yes. So James was raised in California. His dad left when he was 13 years old. His mom died when he was 16 years old, which left him living with his brother. He got into music. That was kind of a way to relieve the pain from the fact that he now was parentless. He was pretty quiet in high school, uh, kept to himself. And he had a couple of bands that he started. One was called Phantom Lord. Okay. Yeah. And then that one eventually disbanded and then led into another one called Leather Charm. And that band did the new wave of British heavy metal sound. They were covering bands, which is interesting to think about because you think about Metallica and you think about Def Leppard and how their world's apart. But in 81, they were doing the same thing. The branches of the tree were a little closer together in the early 80s. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So eventually that band disbanded and James began looking for another band to put together. Well, right about this time, a guy named Lars Ulrich, who was a tennis prodigy from Denmark, had also moved out to California. Right. As it turned out, even though he was like one of the top 10 players in Denmark, he wasn't even like the top five on his street (laughs) once he got to the U.S., right? Before we get going, I just want to point something out. We have been talking to each other now for a couple of years face-to-face, and one of the reasons that I can do that is because you don't have nose hair. 
<laughs> have you been talking to people and like you can't even concentrate on what they're saying because of their nose hair? Absolutely. They like talk to you. They like dangle. <laughs> it dangles, yes. It wiggles. It's it's a total distraction. Absolutely. And so let me let me say, if you are one of those guys, we have a product that is supporting the podcast that you need to check out. It's called the Weed Whacker and it is from Manscaped. It is an amazing product. It trims your nose hair. It's not embarrassing. You just stick it up there. It takes care of it. You're not going to look at people and bother them. Right. And I'm one of those guys who's self-conscious about my nose hair. So somebody that you're going to see me and I'm going to be like yanking them out and wincing in pain. (laughs) Don't do that. There is a special thing that they make. And they've also just released, in addition to the Weed Whacker, they have just released something called the Lawnmower. If you have other areas of your body that you're looking to trim up. And I'd like to point out that a giraffe is easier to see in the plains than it is in the forest. Oh, that's that's wonderful. Yes, yes, it is. So and it's very it's very good around sensitive areas, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, they have also an entire shave kit called the Ultra Smooth Package. Package. <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea. So who it, doesn't want their package ultra smooth? Right, right. So don't forget to go to manscaped.com and use the promo code FANSIDED20 to get 20% off your order and free shipping. Whack it. <laughs> Perfect. I heard him say that. That was really funny, I thought. And so he, when he realized that his dentist dreams were probably not going to come to fruition, he got obsessed with the local heavy metal scene that was going on there in California. And so he started putting out ads in the recycler to try to put a band together. And as it turned out, a couple of guys that had heard about the ads were these guys named Hugh Tanner and James Hetfield. And so they met up and James and Lars immediately hit it off. They both had interest in the same types of music that is how the seed is planted that's how it's born october 28 so when they first start playing together james is pretty good at the guitar he's not fantastic but he's pretty good he described lars as pretty bad <laughs> okay, pretty, pretty not good. Pretty not very good. But what had, Lars had going from him was he knew this guy named Brian Slagel of Metal Blade Records. And he was going to put together this compilation album of mute metal music called Metal Massacre, right? Yeah, that's right. And so Lars, not even having a band, just because he knew the guy said, hey, I want to put a track on this album. And Brian was like, okay, sure. Why yeah, not? I just sounds need, great. I need more people. Let's make that happen, right? That song that they gave to that metal compilation was Hit the Lights. Okay, so they had a song, but they didn't have a name yet. Do you know this? Okay, this is a really cool story. This is kind of crazy. So they they didn't know what their name was going to be yet. And they had this, Lars had this other friend named Ron Quintana. Right. Say what you will, man. That guy can roll. <laughs> Sorry, no, different Quintana, different Quintana. Anyway, Ron Quintana was going to make a metal magazine, right? His, his dream was to have this magazine. So he's tossing around ideas for names with Lars. And he's like, I'm thinking either Metal Mania or Metallica. And Lars' ears perk up and he's like, 
I really like that metal mania name. You should go with that. (laughs) (laughs) And so he did. And Lars stole the name Metallica for the name of the band. That's hilarious. What a great story that is. They also, when they would hand out their stuff, they would call it power metal. This was before the term thrash metal came into play. And so they called it power metal. Well, power metal was also something that he had stolen from Ron Quintana. (laughs) It was on his business card. He's like, ooh, power metal. I like that. I'm going to steal that one, too. So that's how they got power metal, and that's how they got their name. Did you know where the term thrash metal actually comes from? No, tell me. Okay, so there's an anthrax song called Metal Thrashing Mad. That Kerrang! magazine just thought that sounded cool, and they just said, when they just grabbed that and said thrash metal. And there's really, I mean, there's no question about what the sound of thrash metal is versus other types of heavy metal, right? Right. And Metallica becomes one of the big four. You've got Megadeth. You take a mortal man. You've got Anthrax, you've got Metallica, and you've got Slayer. Uh-huh. By the way, I was at the gym like two days ago. And have you ever been there where the guy's like lifting the weight really high and stomping his feet and then just throws it down? It's like this, I'm like, God, why do you do this? Why? And I looked over and he's got this huge Slayer tattoo on his calf muscle. And I'm like, this guy's a true fan. <laughs> this guy's a hardcore fan that he's going to tattoo Slayer on his calf. That guy is really mad and loves <laughs> Satan. Don't mess with him. Okay, before we go any further, D, is thrash metal your thing? Are you like a thrash metal guy or what? Okay, so we are ultimately going to get into the fact that this album is different than the albums of the past right, right. Uh, of Metallica. The answer is simply no. I'm not a thrash metal guy. I, I never got into it and I still am not into it that much. I can, like, if you get thrash with some melody in it, Yes. Like we get on the Black Album right. and a little bit on Injustice for All. Yes, I'm all in. I worked out to it today. Love it. But just this constant, <laughs> it just it just sounds the same to me over and over. And so, no, it's not my thing. Okay. So we should go ahead and get that out. If you're listening to this, mm-hmm. I was talking to our buddy James Buckley this week and trading text with him a little bit. We are fans of music, but we like Def Leppard and Michael Jackson and Bon Jovi. <laughs> and... The Black Album really resonated with us, but we're not hardcore Metallica people. But we're in we're in this. We're enjoying it. We're having fun with it. I'm glad you brought up James Buckley because I texted him too. We both <laughs> were like, hey, let's let's get a hold of James, see what's going on. And he he sent me this article out of Modern Drummer from way back in the early 90s, where Lars Ulrich has the cover and has a big interview and is talking about the difference between what they had done before the Black Album and what he, he did with the Black Album. And it made a lot of sense. He said, we had gone so far with this progressive metal where you've got the syncopated rhythms, you've got the change in time signature, and it began to really center around the drums. But he said, you know, he took it this far, but when he's in concert, he just felt himself being all in his head. He's like, okay, I got this time change coming up here and I've got this other thing that I'd be worried about here. And he 
couldn't live and experience it because he was so much in his head. Now, they had some songs that weren't so technically difficult on the drums, and he found himself able to relax and kind of live in the music. And so he thought, well, we're either going to take it further down the progressive road, which I don't think I want to do, or we're going to go back to basics and we're going to have something that has soul and has more. I mean, it's simpler, but it's something that you can put your soul into. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that as we go through track by track. It's going to be awesome. These songs are different than what they're used to. I asked my friend James Branscombe, okay, different guy, guy I go to church with, and I'm uh -huh. like, all right, listen, I, I'm not really fully understanding the epicness of the early Metallica stuff. Mm -hmm. He's like, well, you have to understand that every song is three songs in one. Right. It's super complicated and it goes and it weaves and it comes here and does this and turns around and comes back. That's not the Black Album at all. No, they they get a hook and they pound it to death and they rode that wave all the way to the top. And I'll say this because you, you and I have talked about this and we talked about it when we were talking about the grunge movement and rock and roll music being about a revolution. Right. So Metallica made itself a band without any mainstream help. Like yeah. they weren't they weren't having singles played on the radio. They weren't on MTV. I mean, the first video they had on MTV was one. That's off their fourth album. That's crazy. And yeah, it, it, and they're playing arenas by this point. So they've made their own name without all of this help. And part of that is that they're a revolution. They're a rebellion against the hair metal bands that were happening at the time. And that's what their fans loved was, hey, we love these guys and we know about them and other people don't. Like that's kind of, it's our secret. And so- <laughs> with the Black Album, when this thing becomes more mainstream, when they become more mainstream, I can see, I can understand how those guys were like, I've lost my band. I understand that. I understand that. And I was thinking about this because I was talking again with James Buckley. And I'm like, you know, what, I, what am I not getting? Because this <laughs> album is so great. Why are the hardcore Metallica fans rejecting it? And he said, well, it's kind of like Van Halen's 1984. Yeah. Their garage band who had gone mainstream with these awesome songs but they felt a little bit abandoned because now everybody jumps in and is like wow i love van halen yeah wow i love metallica and i was thinking to myself i'm like you know what this has happened to me whenever i run into a 20 year old who tells me how great the last jedi is <laughs> i want to freaking punch their lights out oh my gosh that's that's hysterical i'm just like shut that the up hysterical. you get out of here we don't need to talk to you at all Okay. All right. Well, we've pre we've preached on that soapbox, okay, I think, a lot. Let's, right. let's jump back into the history. Okay. okay. So for Hit the Lights, the one that ended up on Metal Massacre, James Hetfield played the bass, and they had this guy named Lloyd Grant play the guitar. And so this was not the Metallica that we know now. This was something completely different. So what they needed, because this guy wasn't here to stay, they needed another lead guitarist. They put another ad out on the recycler. And one of the guys that responded to that ad was a guy named Dave Mustaine. Dave Mustaine, who later creates one of the big four that you mentioned. Yep. He's the head guy for Megadeth. He replied to their ad and they're like, wow, he's got some really expensive equipment. Let's get him. Yeah, let's get him. <laughs> and as it turns out, he could also shred on the guitar. Yeah. The can. problem was he could also shred on the alcohol bottle. Yeah. And he even said it himself. He's like, there's two types of drunks. There's the drunks that get silly and the drunks that get violent. And 
I'm the one that gets violent and they're the ones that get silly. And that's not a good mix. It's not a good mix, but he's not, it's not been a good relationship, but before we, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. All right. So they get Dave Mustaine. They have the old basis from leather charm named Ron McGovney, but they're not feeling like he's the right fit for the band. So with this guy, not really cutting it, they're trying to find another bass player and they end up going to the whiskey, a go-go in West Hollywood. And there is a San Francisco band named trauma playing. And as they walk, in, they see this guy shredding a guitar solo. And they're like, wow, this is the heaviest guitar solo I've ever heard. And they're like, wait a minute, that guitar only has four strings. wait a minute, that's not a guitar, that's a bass. Holy crap, this guy is playing a bass solo and he is killing it. We gotta talk to this guy. That guy's name is Cliff Burton. Yeah, and so they go, they talk to Cliff, they say, hey, we want you in our band. He liked them. They were already party kids at like 19 years old. Right. And so he's like, okay, I'm interested in being in the band, but I'm not moving to LA. You guys have to come up to the Bay Area. And they said, we hate LA, that sounds great. (laughs) So that's so interesting. Let's talk about that for a second. Yeah, go ahead. So. In LA, you've got the upcoming glam scene. I mean, you've got you got Motley Crue, of course, that gives birth to the Poisons and the Guns N' Roses and Dawkins of the world, right? Great yep. White. All these bands are birthed out of the LA scene. Yep. But Metallica just didn't really fit that mold. These these were guys, instead of being in black leather and spandex, Metallica was wearing their t-shirts and jeans. They right. still had the long hair, but there was no hairspray. They had facial hair. They didn't have makeup. This is the revolution that I was talking about. Yeah. I'm not dressing up and having fake blood and doing weird things with, you know, whips. And <laughs> what's weird is more girls would go to the concerts where the guys look like girls than the guys look like guys. I know, right? But Metallica, I mean, I love them, but they're not handsome men. <laughs> they're not good looking guys. That's right. That's, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> so one of the guys that comes across it is this guy named Jonathan Zazula, but we know him better as Johnny Z. Johnny Z. And Johnny Z says, guys, I love what you're doing. I am going to go to New York City for you, and I'm going to broker a deal with you and one of the record companies. And like, great, that sounds great. So he goes out there and gets turned down flat by every record company in New York City. Yeah. So what he does instead is he finances it himself. Says, I'm going to spend fifteen thousand dollars. You guys are going to come out here. I'm going to have my own record label, and we're going to record a record on that record label called Megaforce Records. Megaforce. Megaforce. <laughs> I don't think it has anything to do with Lee Marvin or one of the great movies of 1982. <laughs> so when they moved to New York, they moved into a luxurious condo yeah. that they said today would be called a crack house. Yeah. And they slept on floors like on U-Haul blankets and stuff right. like that. And they said, if you if it was a great day, you had McDonald's. Most of the time, they, they said bologna on hand. They called it loser's lunch, right? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> loser's bologna lunch. Because you can't afford 69 cents for a loaf of bread. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have three quota? <laughs> <laughs> so the album that they're planning to record is going to be called Metal Up Your Ass. Right. And the first thing that they tell Johnny Z when they get there is, hey, thank you for the all expense paid bus ride over here. (laughs) Um, By the way, we're going to fire our guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Like tomorrow. (laughs) And he's like, what the heck? So I'm not really sure. I'm not sure how 
in that in that day and age, in the early 80s, the information traveled and was able to happen so quickly. But basically, they were done with Dave Mustaine. Right. So they wait, you know, let him get drunk and pass out. They go and buy him a bus ticket home <laughs> and then shake him awake. And like, hey, dude, you got to leave. Your bus is leaving in like 10 minutes. He's <laughs> like, what? And like, you're not in the band anymore. Here's your ticket. Get out the door. And you're like, no second chance, no conversation. Get out. Yeah. And that's, he leaves. And at 7 p.m. that night, Kurt Hammett arrives. It's incredible. It's crazy. He says he gets there at seven in the evening and these guys are just waking back up. He's like, these are my guys <laughs> right here. These are my guys. So Kurt Hammett was with a band called Exodus and he could shred. He could shred at the time. He can still shred today. Phenomenal guitar player. And basically, he just kept on going with them through the recording. They would play live shows together. He then became the guy that would break up the fist fights that would happen between Lars and James, which he said <laughs> happened quite a bit. It'd be like somebody threw a punch and somebody's tackling somebody else. And I was the guy that was tasked with stopping all of that. Mustaine goes home, bitter and jaded. Yeah. He's, he's still like calls Hammett a ripoff. Yeah, he's really mad at him. He feels like he stole his job. I mean, well, stole his job. That guy it. has my job and his licks too. I mean, yeah, he 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 thinks that he took songs that you know guitar leads that he had done for songs that they had recorded demos for and just stole them. Yeah, them like off. one of the metal magazines named Kirk Hammett Guitar Player of the Year. Yeah, and Dave Mustaine's like, he's playing my song, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, he it was interviewing with that magazine, and he's like, and you guys made him Guitar Player of the Year. Now here's the here's the thing. We'll, we'll get into this later, but Dave Mustaine can't say the word Metallica. He can't look at these guys. He's certainly not friends with them. He can't even listen to their music until the Black Album. And he's got something very interesting to say about one of the, the songs on the Black Album. Can't wait to hear that. Okay. Little teaser. Yeah. <laughs> Stick around. All right. So they record their first album. It's got a picture of a hand with a dagger coming out of a toilet. <laughs> and it's called Metal Up Your Ass. And the record company says, could we do something else? I can't really sell that at Walmart, guys. Once again. I mean, why don't you just ask us to put a naked baby on the front of your album? <laughs> chasing a dollar bill on a hook. Exactly. <laughs> so they changed the name to Kill Em All. Kill Em All. Kill Em All released July 25th, 1983. Not a big commercial success. Initially, of course. Right. It, it is it definitely sold a lot since then. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but at the time, it led to them becoming a big fan-based underground metal powerhouse. Sure. They start touring after that one. They eventually record the next one. And I'm going to run through these because my hope is that someday we will dive into the thrash metal portion of Metallica's life. Yeah, I'd love to get into some of these like Ride the Lightning and Master, Master of Puppets. Puppets. Master I mean of Puppets is an amazing album. And I think that we need, I mean, I think that And Justice for All is a transition album um, and we can talk about that, but but we can't, we don't have enough time to do that. Today, right. right. We're going okay. to we'll just roll through these. Roll through these. All right. So number two is Ride the Lightning came out in August of 84. We're 
didn't. You know, we got July 83, August of 84. That one actually hit number 100 on the top 200 albums that year. Hey, summer of 84, go back and listen to our Bruce Springsteen and Huey Lewis episodes. Yeah. It's funny to think that during that poppy summer of Thriller and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen, you had Metallica's Ride the Lightning come up. Which shows that their fan base has to be huge, right? Yeah. If there's, again, there's no singles out, they're not on MTV, they're not any of that stuff, but they're still hitting the hitting number 100. That's impressive. Yeah. So here's an interesting thing on Ride the Lightning. Not many deep cuts in this, but here's one. Okay. In France, they accidentally printed it green. I mean, it's, I was, it's a collector's like, item. Yeah, they're collector's items now. Oh, yeah. that is so cool. So if you are, if you're a fan and you have one of the green printed France uh, Ride the Lightning albums, please send us a picture. We will post it on our oh, page. That would be awesome. It would be sweet. It's called Ride the Lightning. <laughs> <laughs> uh not germany oh <laughs> well, thank you doctor <laughs> okay <laughs> after ride the lightning uh, that was august of 84 after its release the next month september of 84 these guys named michael alago and cliff bernstein go to a concert and they see them and they say we want to sign you to electro records yeah and we also want to sign you to our management company called Q Prime. And so they that becomes the new record company and new management of Metallica. So they start touring Europe. They're playing to bigger and bigger houses, about 1,300 people per show, which I mean, that's, if you've ever played a concert at all, a few hundred people is a lot. Over a thousand people, that's a, that's a shocking change. 1,300 sweaty metalhead stompers. Ugly guys. <laughs> Ugly guys. And about five girls. That's right. <laughs> So they go back to the U.S. They start touring, co-headlining with a band that we mentioned on our Terminator episode. You know this? Guns N' Roses is the only one I can think of. Wasp. Wasp. Okay. Yeah, because remember... Yeah. The, uh, Blackie Lawless was uh, supposed you, to be the T1000. Yes. So at that time, <laughs> they were touring with Wasp. And then something very special happens. The Monsters of Rock Festival in England. This happens in August of 85. And instead of playing to 1,300 people, they're playing to 70,000 people. 70,000. 70,000 people. And then not too long after that, they do the Day on the Green Festival and they play to 60,000 people. So suddenly they've been exposed to a whole lot more folks. So then they record album number three, Master of Puppets. Which a lot of folks consider like, like the a perfect best album, album, right? Yeah. yeah, the best album. That came out in March of 1986. It reached number 29 on the album 200 albums chart on billboard uh -huh. spent 72 weeks on that chart they only had one single come off of that album master of puppets but that's what led to the ozzy osbourne tour that's interesting because at this point in my life i started seeing guys in my school wearing metallica t-shirts now these are still the guys that you know go across the street at lunchtime to smoke you know yeah right and, and the kind of the rougher edged people but uh it's slowly moving into you know people becoming familiar with them yeah yeah and it moves from people being familiar with them to they're playing the coliseum opening for ozzy osbourne and people won't stop chanting their name like they can't get off the stage because the entire coliseum's metallica metallica and we're like wait isn't this the Ozzy Osbourne tour? Yeah. Ozzy said it was very hard to follow them a lot of nights. Yeah. I can't. 
I mean, Ozzy what, was. What tour are we here? <laughs> Which, who are we here to see? And it's interesting. We talk about Ozzy. Ozzy was sort of fat and bloated, coked out Ozzy at this point. True. No More Tears comes out. That's his comeback album after he sobers up. Right. It comes out fall of 91 as well. So yep. you have that in there as well. Yeah. So during that time, James Hetfield broke his wrist skateboarding. and As you do when you're 22. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had this guy who was Kirk Hammett's guitar tech sub in for him. Guy's name is John Marshall. A little bit of true life foreshadowing for something that's going to come up later on. Yep. By the way, John Marshall from the band Metal Church, six foot seven. Big guy. Six foot seven. Wow. But it pays to know if you're going to be a roadie, if you're going to be a guitar tech with a band, it pays to know their music because you might end up on stage with them. And this is the part that'll be hard to talk about. September 27th, 1986. They're on their Damage Inc. tour going from Sweden to Denmark or Denmark to Sweden. They drew cards to pick bunks and Cliff won and picked Kirk's bunk. Cliff and Lars were the last two to go to sleep. Lars went up front, went to sleep before Cliff. And that was the last time anybody died. I heard Kirk recalling this story, and you're right. They they drew cards out of a deck, mm -hmm. and the first card selected, Cliff, got the Ace of Spades. Yeah. And that's the card of death. Yeah. It's the, also the highest card in the deck. Yeah. As soon as he drew that Ace of Spades, he's like, I want your bunk, pointing to Kirk. Kirk's like, fine, that's right. Just take it, whatever. So Kirk could have easily been, been in that, that bunk. Yep. Yep. Kind of like the Waylon Jennings story. Yeah. So just before sunrise, the driver lost control of the bus for some unknown reason. He uh, says black ice. Right. He said he walked like a mile back in his underwear looking for black ice and couldn't find it. Right. So after the crash happened, you know, they, they're disoriented. They all are freaking out. They've, James kicks out the back glass. They're all out. They're all like screaming. And then suddenly they realize they don't hear close voice. At that point, that they look and they see his legs coming out from underneath the bottom of the bus. It's really interesting. You know, Cliff, he had done a bunch of other kinds of music. He had done Southern rock, he had done jazz, he had done some classical stuff as well. He was really a very musically deep guy, which is kind of weird to think of the bass player for a heavy metal band being the deep music guy. But I remember reading an article that, like, just that the interview came out just before this all happened, and he was talking about how much he loved the police album the synchronicity album wow musicians love music and so they don't necessarily confine themselves sure listening wise to one set of music but it's just neat to know that the bass player for metallica had a deep appreciation for what was going on with a very new wave sound yeah tragically he died that day in 1986 and the band questioned their future yeah so they checked with his family. They said, Cliff would want you to keep on going. They're like, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what he would want. And so they started auditioning for a new bass player. Among the guys that auditioned was a childhood friend of Kirk's named Les Claypool. Les Claypool, who will, you might not know the name, but if you heard his bass from the group Primus, it's unmistakable. Yeah. Yeah. They listened to him and they're like, Ah, uh, you're too good for us. <laughs> <laughs> good luck in your future endeavors. Yeah, yeah. They had um, another guy, Troy Gregory, who had uh, been with Prong, and they had this kid named Jason Newstead, who was a super fan and had previously belonged to this group called Floatsome and Jetson. He learned their entire set list before he went to audition. <laughs> good for him. And it got him the job. That's, that's why you show up ready 
people for your job interview. Yeah. And so they, at the urinal decided, yeah, this is the guy that they want as they're eating at the restaurant or wherever. <laughs> so they go out and they're like, sorry, you didn't get it. It's like, uh, and they're like, we're just kidding. You got it. And he starts doing backflips off the table. Like, dude, you got to chill. <laughs> and at that point, the hazing began. Yeah. They hazed the crap out of him. They said, they told him, I can't remember. Like it was, they told him that some it was, oh, it was a uh, wasabi. It was a ball of wasabi. Wasabi. Oh, yeah. Try that. It's like pudding or something. <laughs> it's <laughs> it, delicious. It's an, it's an entire spoonful of wasabi. <laughs> yeah. He was, I think they took out a lot of frustration on him, and that's kind of unfortunate. Well, they didn't want him to feel like he was just won the lottery and walked into this band who was mega successful and, hey, guys, here I am. I'm just going to start making millions with you all. So they wanted him to earn his spot. Yeah. And uh, maybe they're a little tough on him. So they were supposed to appear on Saturday Night Live in 1987, but Hetfield was skateboarding again and broke his wrist again. What? And so they had to cancel. They would have, I'm wondering what would have happened had they appeared on Saturday Night Live in 87. Wow. Not that they weren't already doing really well at that point, but it wasn't the mind blowing thing that it was once the next album came out. Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. In August of 87, you know, they've kind of been having an album come out every year. August of 87, they had an EP come out. It was all covers and it was called the $5.98 EP Garage Days Re-Revisited. Then they do a video uh, that's called Cliff Amal and it's a tribute to Cliff as his bass solos has home videos and photographs. I, I haven't seen it, but I'd really like to check that one out. It's interesting. I want to tell this personal story. You know, my mom passed away in 88 and I went out to see my aunt and my cousins who I've spoken about before. The ones that I went into the vacation trading places, risky business movie with, and they lived in Castro Valley, which is just outside of San Francisco. Right. Yeah. I can remember talking to my cousins who were also musicians and then Metallica came up. I don't know how or why, but it came up and they're like, oh yeah, we knew Cliff. He was a really, you know, amazing guy. And I was like, I don't really know who it was. So it didn't mean much to me at the time. And it was like, he died. I'm like, okay. Later on, I remember that conversation, but I also know my cousins and I'm like, okay, maybe they're a little full of it. Right. Right. Well, I went, when I was looking at Cliff Burton, he went to Castro Valley high school. Like he literally, like he was four years difference in age in these guys. They actually probably knew it. All right. And then we have, and justice for all fourth album, September 1988 reaches number six on the 200 albums chart. Went platinum in nine weeks. This is kind of where I enter the scene. Absolutely where I enter the scene. Well, when the video for one comes out, right. that's where I enter the scene. The Like you said, the thrash metal, to me, it was all in that same category. Megadeth, Iron Maiden, Anthrax, all of those guys were not people I was interested in listening to, but I was an MTV devotee. Me too. And when one came out, that video was mesmerizing. That song was incredible. I still, it's my, it is my favorite Metallica song of all albums and all songs. Okay. Definitely. Definitely. And I might pass this on to my 18 year old daughter. I think she was probably 17 or 16 when I had her listen to it for the first time, but she's like, I want to learn how to play the drums. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, if you want to learn how to play the drums, I need you to listen to this song. And so I, had, I played it for her and she like, she, it became her, I'm playing this every single time we're in the car song. Wow. It's amazing. That double kick drum. Yeah. It's tough. Yes. 
But uh, you're right. That that video was super interesting because it had some movie clips from Johnny Get Your Gun, and yeah, it was sad and like, oh my gosh, this guy's trapped in his body and he can't talk and he can't communicate and it's all in his head. And so normally in this situation, a band would license the rights to use the movie in their video. They bought the rights. They bought the rights to the entire film. So I think now if you ever, you know, if you catch it on TV, Metallica's getting a cut of that because they bought the rights to the movie. That is cool. Yeah. So they start doing the Damage Justice Tour, and then they get nominated for a Grammy. New category. Yeah. Hard Rock. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. So the Grammys at this time, they're just kind of recognizing Hard Rock. Yeah. And it's like the people who are in charge don't even really know what they're doing. Obviously. Well, we're going to talk about this, but Metallica was nominated and they were the favorite. Yeah, and they performed. They performed performed one. Killed it. They're off stage, prepared to receive this award. Uh And the Grammy goes to Jethro Jethro Tull. What? What? (laughs) I'm sorry. Did you say the 1970s hard rock category? The flute guy? What? Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I love Jethro Tull, but not in 1988. What? It makes no sense. Yeah, it's no and sense. Not only did it not make sense to us, but it also didn't make sense to Jethro Tull's manager, <laughs> who said, guys, don't worry about coming. Just stay home. Metallica is going to win. Right. Yeah. Jethro Tull wasn't even there because they were sure that Metallica was going to win this. Yeah. Referred to as one of the biggest upsets in Grammy history. I'm sure they'd like to do that over. <laughs> Yeah, Could you just imagine? I mean, just imagine that you're one of the members of Metallica. You've just done this killer set. You're standing just off stage, ready to burst out. And the winner is Jethro Tull. It's like all the air comes out of your body. <laughs> this is like in 1984. If Michael Jackson's standing off stage and they're like, okay, the uh, album of the year is Donnie and Marie Osmond. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... That taste. And another thing that happened, which was the release of an album that we covered last year called Dr. Feelgood by one of those hair bands that Metallica hated. Yep. Spawned a meeting. It did because they weren't fans of Motley Crue, but that album sounded great in their ears. And they're like, who is the guy who produced that album? Yeah. Now, the guy, Mr. Bob Rock, who we've mm-hmm. talked about before, he yep. had been an engineer on the Bon Jovi albums. He had produced Dr. Feelgood and Aerosmith, and he had come from this little band called Aeolus. Aeolus. Yes, who had a hit called Eyes of a Stranger, which was on the Valley Girl soundtrack. All right. It won the Juno Award for Single of the Year. What? Yeah, but his career in music was not to be one on the stage. He wanted to be producing. And so he went to listen to Metallica Live and he said, guys, glad you called. You are not capturing what you sound like live on your albums. And you need to, because it's incredible. And I can do that for you. Yeah. How do you not say yes to that? I, I know. I Lars at the time was a little taken aback. He's like, uh, 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 who are you? <laughs> you? You're talking to me? What? Yeah. But he was right. The sound of the Black Album is one of the things that sets it apart. Dude, the lucky thing of, of wandering in stores as a dad is that you wander by those $5 CD crates. <laughs> right. And I'm like, was that the Black Album? Holy crap, that's Blood Sugar Sex Magic. I'm, I'm like... Oh, this is Rage Against the Machine. I'm like, 
Oh, uh, what? These are only $5. The bargain bin. <laughs> so I bought all of these CDs. And so when we're covering this, I usually don't pull out a CD to listen to, but this time I got to. And I know that music is supposed to be the same in all digital formats, but I'm just going to tell you, listeners, go listen to your CDs again, because when I plug that CD into my car and listened to Boom! I was like, holy crap, this is so much better than what I'm listening to off of my phone. What is going on here? Yeah. It's a better sound. Oh, yeah. And people have gotten used to listening out of their crappy little device. Yeah. It makes a difference with a good pair of speakers, a good set of headphones, and you laying on your back in the middle of the floor with the, the CD jacket open. Yeah. Okay, D, before we go anywhere, I want to do a couple of things. So, this is such an epic project. You know, the Black Album means a lot to people. Usual Illusion 1 and 2 were certainly such big, massive, eventful albums in 91 that we reached out to a couple of people and asked for their, their thoughts. So our buddy, John Reed from the 30-something movie podcast, good friend of ours. He also co-hosts the podcast Full of Kryptonite, which we do with him together. Go check that out, by the way. Podcast Full of Kryptonite. It's all thanks Superman. You gotta love it. Go check that out. Subscribe. But I just, I talked to him. I know he's he's a huge Guns N' Roses Metallica fan. And I just asked for his thoughts. And here's what he said. Hey, Dean Jason, it's your good buddy, John Reed, the host of the 30-something movie podcast and co-host of the absolutely amazing podcast full of kryptonite that uh, I co-host with two of my very best super friends which just happened to be you guys. Just want to say I've been loving your shows lately. Terminator, Aliens, now Metallica and GNR. You guys are hitting up all of my favorite, all of my adolescent formative years, movies and music and, and all kinds of stuff. So it's just been so much fun to listen to you guys. And, and you guys are, as always, knocking it out of the park. I just wanted to call in real quick and just drop a line and just say GNR and Metallica. I mean, that was big for me. Those are those are probably my two biggest bands that I was into as a kid. Actually had an opportunity to go see Guns N' Roses in Paris in June of 92. I had some friends. I was living overseas at the time. In England, had some friends that were going. I mean, we were only 11, 12 years old at the time, but their parents were taking them. And uh, my mom found out, and, and they actually invited me to go with them. The parents were going to take me, and my mom found out and said, no, I'm not, my 11-year-old child is not going to go see Guns N' Roses in another country. So I did not get the chance to go see that one, which then, ironically, that was right before uh, you had the tour that started up that was Metallica and Guns N' Roses together, So, which we kind of know how that thing all ended up. But yeah, no, I loved Guns N' Roses my first exposure was Use Your Illusion Volume 2, which I had one of my buddies, like I said, he made a, a, a bootleg copy for me, and I kept that hidden in my jacket pocket so that my parents would not find it. And then it was pretty a pretty long stretch of time until I finally got Use Your Illusion Volume 1. Next few years, we moved back to the States, and I was a moody, angsty teen, and Use Your Illusion Volume 1 was the perfect album for that time period in my life. Volume 2, I'd say Yesterday's Get in the Ring for any angsty preteen or teen uh, is an awesome song just because anybody who's heard it knows exactly why and then you could be mine you know knowing i was a big terminator fan that that one was from that movie and and i was able to hear it there and just a great song volume one i think double talk and jive garden of eden and coma they were the the much darker songs and i think those are the ones that i really liked from that album then on into high school i was into got some friends then got me into metallica and so on metallica on the black album i'd say sad but true Wherever I May Roam and The Unforgiven are probably three of my favorites off of that. And Metallica kind of carried me through high school. I kind of switched a little bit from Guns N' Roses to Metallica. So I'd have to say now, 
if I had to look back on them, which one is the best, I think I'm probably going to go Use Your Illusion Volume 2. I still enjoy Metallica, but I've, I've swung back to listening to Guns N' Roses a little bit more often, and I think it's, it's probably more my all-time favorite. If I had to choose, if anybody was asking my opinion, I would say Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion Volume 2 is the best out of those three. All right, guys, good luck on the rest of your recordings, and thank you so much, and thank you for all you guys do to just continue to entertain and and inform us and and just all the great shows you guys are putting out. We'll see you later for some more Superman episodes, too. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, We'll we'll see whether we agree with John or not at the end, I guess. John's a great dude. He's got a great show at the 30-something movie podcast. They go all through their movies that are 30 years old, so they're going through 91 right now. Right, yeah. These albums are coming out right at the same time that the movies that they're discussing are coming out as well. Thanks, John. Appreciate you, buddy. Okay, guys, if you've listened this far, please, if you haven't yet, hit that follow button, hit that subscribe button, whatever podcast app you're using to listen to us, make sure that you hit that so that when our episodes come out, they automatically come to your phone and you don't miss a moment of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. And go follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. We are having a heck of a time. Okay, guys, if you would like to be an executive producer of a podcast, we have a very easy and inexpensive way to make that happen. Just go over to our Patreon page. You go to Patreon, you search Shirley Podcast, we will pop up. And for as little as five bucks a month, you can become an executive producer. Beyond that, there are prizes and wonderful gifts beyond your imagination. There's some pretty cool stuff that we send out. Yeah. But- it's a secret. <laughs> We're not going to tell you what it is. We will. You will just have to wait and see, but I promise it's worth it. You can tell by. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. We're not talking about that this, this week. Thank you to all of our Patreons. We really, really appreciate uh, your particular support. We really could not do this without you guys. Thank you. Thank you. So I think that means it's time for us to plug in our CD. Here we go. Track what? by track. Wait, sorry. Next week. Next week. Ah, stupid record player.